Blog Talk Radio. on the blog talk radio and affiliate networks welcome this episode is brought to you by health innovation media monitoring the innovation impulse from idea to business model and emerging best practices welcome everyone i'm greg masters the producer and co-host of the show and joining me in the virtual studio for our month-end pop health review are my colleagues fred goldstein and if we're lucky douglas goldstein no relation who's hailing from the corridors of digital health innovation in the great state of España. Fred is a principal co-host and co-founder of Pop Health Week, while Doug joins us for this month-end wrap-up. And today we highlight the key takeaways from the Population Health and ACO series that we've booked to date, as well as some newsworthy stuff on the road to the triple aim. For those of you not familiar with Fred, is he a subject matter expert with deep roots in the hospital, health plan, health wellness, and prevention space from disease management to population health. He is a board member and past chair of the Population Health Alliance, also known as PHA, having served most recently as its executive director and now captains the ship at Accountable Health LLC, a population health management company who is a co-sponsor of this broadcast. And Doug, a popular speaker, author, and consultant specializing in business development and strategic venture formation, advising a number of companies, currently serving as national chair for the Health 2.0 Regional Innovate Smarter Roundtable Series. And yours truly, Greg Masters, two health guru and the founder and CEO healthinnovationmedia.com and the publisher of ACO Watch. Well, hi, Fred. <laughs> Hello, Greg. How are you doing? And I say Fred because I don't see Doug in the queue. So uh, maybe we'll hear from him and, and maybe we won't. So um, lots to cover today, my friend. Uh, well, let's get right down to it. Uh, we visioned this series on population health and ACOs and thought it made sense to dive into at least one thought leader, chief executive, et cetera, from one of each provider type or ACO type, including physician-led, hospital-sponsored, and health plan-enabled. And our first chat was with Farzad Mastashari, the founder and CEO of physician-led ACO management company, Alidade, which is a venture-funded, value-based healthcare play, followed by a very interesting chat with Jerry Meckless, the Managing Director at Accenture Health. Fred, what do these two thought leaders have to say about ACOs and population health? Well, well thanks, Greg. Uh, I think it was a, uh, a really good two first two shows we had on ACOs, and obviously we're going to get into it some more. But, you know, Farzad obviously has put together a company focused on creating a system that providers can use to aggregate together to begin to take these value-based contracts and play in the risk field. I thought it was a really interesting approach he has, and obviously, given his notoriety and expertise in the area, 
uh, a great person to have done that because he gets natural credibility just from the work he's done uh, prior to setting up Allidade. So uh, some of the unique things I thought about his model was, first of all, you're beginning to see this concept that people can or, or maybe some providers can and other providers may not be so good at doing some of these newer value-based contracts. They may be more set in their ways regarding fee-for-service and their ability to change and work within a new system is difficult. And it was pretty clear, as we learned in, in uh, the discussions, that that Allidade is uh, selecting providers and going out and targeting providers based on some data that they have to determine who would be most likely to be successful in these models, which also made sense from the perspective of the fact that their, their pricing structure or the way they get paid is different from most vendors in this space or providers and that they're going into it as a partner with the physician group and taking risk. They get a small fee for per provider, but the majority of the earnings are associated with savings generated by the, um, the venture itself. So obviously need some capital to do that, support the operations, wait, awaiting the savings. And um, that's probably one of the reasons they got the fairly substantial capital infusion. I would assume over time they may need more as they continue to grow, similar to how an HMO would be structured where you're taking this risk but may not see the reward, especially in this case, for the period of a year or more. So I found that very interesting. I'm not sure, uh, Greg, if you had any thoughts on that, and particularly some of the, the models and the way they're doing it and picking providers. Absolutely. I, I think the model is really brilliant because it puts the performance right where it belongs, and that is on the management company to produce value for the client. And I had mentioned to Farzad, who uh, he's taken some hits uh, when he was national coordinator for health IT and, uh, and then sort of pivoting into the ACO space with, a, uh, shall we say, some um, incubation period at Brookings where he uh, was in, quite involved in, in ACO policy and talking to thought leaders and really getting sort of the operational glide path down in terms of how it um, plays out in, in, in different ACO provider types. But the fact that they really on a pay for performance basis versus a admin fee tacked on top of what was at least in V1 of this during the physician practice management company days of med partners, FICOR and the likes, is uh, rarely did they earn the the uh, incremental income to offset the management fee. So, you know, that sort of uh, PPMC model sort of collapsed of its own weight some 10 years uh, out after launch. So, yeah, to put them pretty much, hey, if we don't save money, we don't earn an income. So, I think the key thing that we kind of probed into was, well, Farzad, is this a wise model and does it dry up after all the low-hanging fruit is wrought out of the system? Yeah, I think he really put himself and the organizations put themselves out there. Um, interesting as we'll get to in a little bit, uh, ACOs aren't showing some great savings and, and uh, reiterate again a report that we'll discuss a little later. So it really is saying, we firmly believe that our systems will do something. And right. uh, as he said, he's got some early data that looks good. And hopefully right. that data continues because it'd be nice to see some of these new and emerging models become successful. Right. So, and and they're, really, they're really focused. They, they're putting down a regional footprint. They're going for smaller entities. So you might say that the prevailing fee-for-service baseline is such that they will, with some prudent management, actually achieve the target savings and show distributions for the 
uh, partner uh, docs as well as the management company. And the other thing I'd add is, uh, you know, the fact that they're in their what B uh, round uh, with their original investors, Venrock and Arch says quite a bit that not only does uh, Farzad Mostashari have confidence in this model, the, his key partners, Bob Kocher at all, uh, agree. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that completely. And I think what will be interesting to see a couple of years down the road is what we may find out is that their selection criteria and the data they used to identify the providers was that good to be able to pick the people who could work in this environment and be successful at it. Um, thereby minimizing their risk and having them fall into one of those very successful models for uh, for uh, things and improving quality using the ACO model. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, another key driver of vetting who you actually work with. Oh, some might say potentially bordering on, quote, cherry picking, but clearly <laughs> you have to hedge your bet somehow. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I wish them the best. I I, I love what they're doing and, and we're going to watch them very closely. In fact, uh, we're going to have to get him back, you know, six months down the road to see what the baseline performance looks like uh, at that point. Absolutely. And I wasn't going to use the term cherry picking, but since you threw it out there, I think that's a a very good way to look at it. Sort of first to market to pick the best providers um, may be an unbelievably successful way to to do this. You know what surprises me, Fred, is uh, we didn't hear any of the names that we might associate with that risk stratification. Uh, and, and I won't mention any at this point either. So don't know who he's actually working with or this is home-baked kind of uh, algorithm-driven database mining physician performance calls about uh, docs who qualify or not. But I clearly, I think if you're going to operate on a contingent fee basis, you really need to do something like that. Absolutely. And then maybe when we get him back, we can delve a little deeper into some of the analytics and partners that he might be using to do some of that work and get a better feel for it. Great. Well, the second uh, person we had was Jerry Mecklaus from Accenture. And uh, interesting pivot after talking with um, Farzad and uh, the small provider-based aggregator of key providers, but also some similarities, I think, when you looked at it, where Accenture here is really working with very substantial and large health systems. They started this out with the Henry Ford Health System and uh, years ago before ACOs were formed and they began to move into creating the types of systems and programs you would need to do this on a very large scale across a broad array of provider types. And here again, you know, Accenture talked about when you get to that kind of a model, the issue of scale becomes so much more critical than if you've got a model of a small group of providers or even aggregating a number of small group of providers that create much different types of issues you're dealing with, as well as the broader issues of to be successful, essentially, according to Jerry, you've got to have this mission, this underlying understanding and a collective, as he called it, mission confluence and sharing a sense of purpose between the hospital, the providers, and the other types of companies in your network, which sort of beckons me back to this idea of picking your providers. Again, people with a similar mission. And I'm not sure if during that process, because we didn't get to it with Jerry, if there were certain providers that maybe opted out or may have moved out into different types of relationships with that system because of the changes. Um, 
The other thing he talked about that was very interesting was, as he called it, the WIFM. What's in it for me? And having to be able to explain that to all of the different segments of that large health system. And in particular, as we got into the idea of the hospital itself and the specialists who typically have thrived in many ways under fee-for-service, now switching to a value-based contract and having to uh, work differently in it. So I thought it, there were some there were some similarities there. I thought this point of scale versus some of these smaller ones. When we've looked at groups in the past, when we talked to uh, Rushika or um, um, Roy Hinman, small groups that are able to be very successful, but is it scalable to the size of a huge health system? I'm not sure if we've answered that question. Right. And of course, we jumped at the opportunity to chat with Jerry because obviously Accenture, big footprint in the space and certainly speaks with authority about business models and their relative success. However, they're really, I mean, I think he answered the question that their footprint is really at the, the players who are capitalized to actually pay the fee <laughs> to engage, right. uh, you know, uh, an enterprise like Accenture, which has a big footprint. Um, so they're by proxy representative of the health system engineered, sponsored, initiated ACOs who, as you point out, are not as nimble as some of these physician-led enterprises. But it's we'd, we'd love to hear from and are, was actually hoping to get uh, either advocate health partners or uh, Texas Health Resources, who are essentially hospital-sponsored but physician-driven plays that are nonetheless facing essentially that conflict between value-based reimbursement and a production-built infrastructure that still needs to be fed until such time as your full-risk PMPM, where hospitals are cost centers. And other than places like Kaiser Permanente here in California, I don't see hospital CEOs seeing themselves as cost centers in the near term. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting issue. And I think the whole question of can provider groups that are physician-led versus a hospital-led system, early results seem to point more towards the physician-led ones. But interesting enough, in the studies that just came out, the CMS released data, again, Banner Health out in uh, Arizona and those multi uh, and the multi-state system ha uh, showed some really good savings and generated quite a bit of income off their shared savings from their ACO program. I think they generated. Um, let's see, I have the numbers here. Uh, Banner Health accounted for 29 million in total savings for the Pioneer ACOs. So clearly, there's some something being done right by some of these larger systems. And uh, maybe once we can begin to tease that out, get a few more in and talk to them, we'll have a better sense of what that is. Uh, and I do agree with you. Even Jerry talked about this concept. We got to. This is a step to full risk. We got to move this thing to full risk. Right. That's the only way you reconcile conflicting incentives. And by the way, I might say. Uh, when we talk Banner, we're talking about essentially, I believe we're talking about Aetna as the health plan partner. And uh, so we say a shout out to uh, um, uh, Charles Kennedy and Chuck Saunders over there for their innovation because they've been showing some pretty positive results, I think, across the board with their commercially negotiated ACO contracts. Right, right. And hopefully we can at some point get some of the health plans in to, to talk a little about some of their models, how they've worked with the provider groups to create these effective systems 
by uh, sharing resources or expertise. Right, and throw the Humana potential merger into the uh, scenario there, and you've got uh, essentially deep roots into the Medicare Advantage space as far as uh, potential Medicare ACOs or MSSPs or even Pioneers. Right, and as we see the, some of the larger employers, again, doing this like a Boeing, going straight to the ACOs up in the Seattle area, uh, there's going to be some interesting stuff from the employer side as well that we'll need to delve into and find out just what it is they're doing. Cool. I so, yeah, I did want to go a little into this uh, CMS report that just came out. So they released some new data. And what was interesting as I looked at the, the press was depending on who it was, they were spinning them different ways. You know, oh, we've got continued success. We've seen some growth, some, some improvement year over year, um, those kinds of things. At the same time, modern healthcare comes out and its lead is three out of four Medicare accountable care organizations did not slow health spending enough to earn bonuses last year. So um, a continuation of mixed results for an initiative that the federal, federal officials have targeted for <laughs> rapid expansion. So, you know, what, what is the answer? Is it, a, is it I, I think it's still pre-mixed and maybe a little towards the slower side. Right. It, it really depends on the spin here. So I think you, uh, depending on the uh, PR firm you engage, <laughs> you make it a different, you know, I, again, which side of the uh, ideological spectrum you presumably most identify with might determine how you perhaps frame the results. Right. And I, I would say uh, fairly modern healthcare did, did have both sides on. So CMS came out and said that this shows that ACOs with more experience in the program tend to perform better over time. Um, and what was also interesting was some of the comments by others. Uh, Dr. Patel, who they talked to from, um, who's the managing director of clinical transformation for the Brookings Institution Center for Health Policy, said that this shows that controlling costs is hard. Delivering highly coordinated care is very difficult. An ACO is a start, but it's certainly not the ultimate solution. Um, yeah, so, are, yeah. Are, are you referring to, uh, I, I might I might have missed this, but are you referring to the Becker's re review piece? Yeah, that one was out as well. So, right, right, so, right. right. Yeah. Yeah, so they, they, they did 10... They did 10, uh, 10 things to know about the results, and, and, and number 10 is, quote, the program is still receiving strong interest, and CMS plans to announce new and renewing ACOs by the end of the year. So I don't see this, you know, tepid in some respects, as the results may be, in terms of goals and objectives for the program. I don't see this going away anytime soon. No, and I, I, it harkens me back to the National Association of ACOs, which had a a press release maybe four or six months ago that said their survey of their members showed that most didn't really want to continue. At the same time, we're seeing this, you know, rapid growth. It's kind of like, I think it's a couple of our guests have said, get on the train or you're going to miss it. And, uh, yeah. and I think we're seeing that. And then the question is, can we come up with the really viable ways to make this model work? And we're, and obviously they're all still learning, although some of them like a banner or they even talked in this article about Montefiore saving $18 million. Some of them, it sounds like, have definitely gotten the systems in place and an understanding of their population to do it. And you you would hope that it's not just some um, natural selection or a, a, a selection process that allowed them to do that, just given where they were and how they started, but they've actually put in what I believe is probably some good systems to do it. Yeah, we definitely need to talk to the uh, Montefiore ACO and see what their secret sauce is, because whatever they're doing seems to be working. 
Yeah, the two of them, I mean, had what, 29, 18, 47 million dollars in savings out of, of, for the pioneers out of a total of 82. Yeah. (laughs) So those two. Right. And and clearly the the pioneer program did, I don't know, it might, might sunset because the more risk savvy players are saying, why should I do this versus Medicare Advantage? You know, so. Right. That's a question that hasn't really necessarily been answered. But uh, all the growth is in the uh, Medicare shared savings programs. And I think Jerry correctly pointed out that they're really uh, sort of a bridge to risk assumption and a graduated bridge at that. So if you structure uh, the comp plans appropriately to go from a production to gradually incrementally towards uh, um, uh, risk with a value on ramp, then... Uh, this thing could play out over the three, six years uh, that they're going to run in terms of each individual contract. Right. And then you know, getting back to that Becker's thing, I think uh, what they said was that of the 333 MSSPs, ACOs, 97 saved $806 million. So about a third of them, just under a third of them generated savings that earned $347 million in shared savings. So of those, um, not all of them got the, got shared savings, but 97 of them did generate some savings. Right. And it's interesting that there also might be unmeasured impact to the extent that you change workflows, practice patterns, introduce a mindset around value versus production, and it create enabling culture and infrastructure around that. It's going to impact other areas of practice, which aren't necessarily measured in the at least Medicare portion of the ACO contract. Right. And the, and the other important thing that they actually are showing some good results with is they are improving quality measures. So uh, getting some better care outcomes, et cetera, based on changing your systems and beginning to focus on this and creating more of a value based approach. So all in all, I think, you know, as you said, they're, they're not going away anytime soon. Let's uh, continue to see if there are ways to, to enhance the effectiveness of these programs and make them more even better. So we, before we pivot on this one, Fred, Let's just put a plug out to anyone who may be listening who might be on the health plan enabled side of this conversation. We would love to talk to you, Aetna, Humana, United, Blues, whoever, WellPoint, or Anthem, sorry. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, We want to feature that conversation. And again, also, uh, whether it's Montefiore or Advocate Health Partners or Texas Health Resources, um, Sharp, Scripps, whoever. Yeah, we want to talk to a health system, quote, sponsored, if you will, ACO play. So uh, ping either uh, uh, Fred or me, Twitter, Fred at FS Goldstein, or me at Two Health Guru. And we'll be sure we know there are a couple mergers potentially going on here now. We'll be sure to steer completely clear of those issues so you won't have any concerns from the SEC or your regulatory folks. Um, so we're going to pivot now, correct, Greg, to the next. Yeah, topic. let's go. Let's go next. Next topic. So the next topic was uh, a piece by Ronald Bayer and Sandro Galea in the New England Journal of Medicine that's gotten some interesting press regarding public health in the precision medicine era. And uh, the issue really raised is we we in the United States seem to be enamored with technology, new cool stuff, the latest uh, genetic testing, and and there was a recent announcement by the president that we're going to put this funding into precision medicine. And the, the article really discusses, is that the appropriate place for us to be spending 
so much money when we when we have these larger public health or population health issues uh, and uh, and could impact potentially impact more people uh, than looking at these precision medicine where we may find uh, some individual cure to some small issue or a better way to treat a smaller group of people and um, it's 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 always been an issue in the in this country it, it it relates directly to why our costs are much higher than other countries, yet our overall outcomes are poorer in most measures. And uh, I thought it raised a really interesting point. So as I looked at it, I said to myself, well, the first hand, I said, well, precision medicine is actually, I could, I could place that within a population health framework because as you think about from the healthy to the end of life, you begin to say, Okay, I need to identify my population. I assess them. Okay, precision medicine may be a better way to assess them. I stratify them. Well, clearly, if you know more about the individual, you're better able to stratify them based on whatever information you've gotten from the, the uh, precision medicine. And then you may be able to do better interventions because you now have a better understanding of the individual, and ultimately that benefit would flow up to the population. But they really looked at this from a care perspective and said, in essence, no, this is just completely not antithetical, but just not not appropriate focus if we if we really want to help healthcare in the United States and maybe we ought to move the funding elsewhere. Yeah, no, no doubt there is a compelling need to move into empirically validated evidence-based medicine to spin off best practices. There's no question about it. And I think if anyone has framed this issue well, it's Eric Topol, you know, without a doubt. And Eric Topol, while he frames the upside for precision medicine, or I believe as he calls it, individualized medicine, not personalized medicine, is um, moving away from these real, you know, these average at this averaging out and plus he has the patient will see you now perspective so he doesn't lose sight of this uh, shared decision making uh, calculus that that's got to work because if anyone brings in the social determinants of health which is what Bayer et al is talking about in this precision medicine versus population health uh, choice uh, it's the patient you know so but l I want to read this conclusion from this article that you're talking about and in it because it, it, it's pretty powerful it ends as follows without minimizing the possible gains to clinical care from greater realization of precision medicine's promise we worry that an unstinting focus on precision medicine by trusted spokes spokespeople for health is a mistake and a distraction from the goal of producing a healthier population. And I say, right on and ouch. Absolutely. Uh, this, whole, this whole concept, as you, as you brought up, of social determinants of health, we, we, we understand now why we've got these issues, you know, associated with poverty, access, transportation, um, ability to have safe neighborhoods, et cetera, that are all greatly impacting the health of this country, yet we continue to spend large sums on these, the, the latest gadget, gizmo, app, pill, whatever, that um, really is not necessarily improving overall health. I think there's a place for both, but I would prefer that the, the um, personalized or precision medicine era that, and, and topics fit within a broader population health framework and are looked at and measured in that kind of a realm so we could maybe better allocate the funding. Yeah, totally agree. And I think we have a strong need for some de definitional clarity 
because whether you refer to it as precision medicine or personalized medicine or individualized medicine, that's not vetted against any sort of standard definition of what we're talking about. And that maybe the precision medicine initiative that the president launched earlier this year is a move into that direction. And I don't think anyone who's bringing up these issues can be tagged with an anti-science bias here because we want evidence-based um, uh, guidance on into best practices. And we only know a little, you know, this whole genome uh, revealed uh, and informed uh, input into medical decision-making is really just beginning. So there's lots of promise there, but let's not forget about some of these issues that one of our colleagues, Esther, uh, Dyson uh, in the Way to Wellville initiative points out is, you know, most of this stuff is really outside the direct control of the healthcare system. So let's not forget social determinants of health. Absolutely. So where are we now? I guess we're not going to hear from, uh, I call them Where's Waldo in España, our colleague Doug Goldstein. But what he's been doing is uh, he's been meeting with digital health uh, leaders, entrepreneurs, etc., in uh, in Spain, and uh, we were going to get an update about. Oh, let's see. I think we have <laughs> in the last waning minutes here. Is this a call from? <laughs> is this a call from? Where's Waldo? <laughs> uh, I'm in, I'm in the middle of uh, Barcelona. Can you hear me? Uh, we can hear you. Go ahead. We've only got a couple of uh, minutes here, so. Give us an update. Tell us what's going on. Well, digital health is alive and quite well in uh, Barcelona and throughout Spain. There's some very interesting technology that we're hi I'm highlighting and that I'll bring forward in the next uh, week or month for the next show, and I'll be a little more organized as opposed to sitting on a uh, plaza in the middle of old Barcelona. Well, all I can say is we will look forward to that. And um, I'm just, we feel I have deep gratitude. You were able to check in even with that very limited report, Doug. So thank you so much. So Fred, yeah. unless you have some final words, we're about at the half hour. Time to wrap up. Do you, uh, anything, want to share anything, concluding thoughts? Looking forward to a good uh, report from uh, Doug when he gets back and also next week's uh, guest. Uh, yes, and tell us a little bit about that. Who who are we to expect? So next week we will be our guest will be Governor and former Secretary of HHS Tommy Thompson. Oh, awesome! Knows a little bit about healthcare and innovation, so we will look forward to that. And with that, we'll have to be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank my colleagues Fred Goldstein and Senor Douglas Goldstein for their thoughts and insights today. We do this weekly at 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesdays. Join us next week as we continue our deep dive into the population health and ACO series with former governor, Tommy Thompson. Until then, for Fred Goldstein and Douglas Goldstein, this is Greg Master saying bye now.